This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I would like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin a series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Conveniently starts with two chapters of the birth narratives. Convenient because here we are in mid-December with Christmas coming up. Uh, Lord willing, we will look at these at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 leading up to Christmas and Christmas Eve. And then uh, in the new year, resume with chapter 3 and 4. We will not, however, go back through 5, 6, and 7 as we recently went through the Sermon on the Mount. But after chapter 4, then we'll move to chapter 8 and continue, Lord willing, to make his way, make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer, and Azer, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask for your blessing on our study of it together this morning, and we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth, and we know that your word is truth, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It's often said that we give gifts at Christmas because God gave the greatest gift of all, his son, Jesus, to us. Now, I don't know if that's historically true or not, but certainly for Christians, it's reason enough to give gifts to one another because God has given such a gift to us. Now, just as we're curious to learn about, know about what the gift is that someone has given to us, so we should also be curious to know about this gift that the Lord has given to us. And in this opening chapter of his gospel, Matthew opens the package, so to speak, uh, to find out what's, what it's about, what's inside. He takes great pains here in Matthew 1 to make sure that we're absolutely clear about the nature of this gift, about who this Jesus is that God has given to us. And he tells us a couple things here about Jesus. First of all, he tells us that in the birth of Jesus, The Lord has given us a king. The Lord has given us a king, a sovereign, a ruler. We see this in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. We read through it because I don't know if you've ever actually read through it. Maybe you're one of those people who comes to the genealogy and your eyes just sort of glaze and move ahead very quickly back forward rather on to something maybe more interesting. Um, and honestly, I've done that too. Preachers sometimes do that too. However, in reading the genealogy, uh, we hear these names. We recognize this, this pattern that has unfolded here that leads up to the birth of Jesus in uh, giving us a king. And the genealogy is meaningful. Matthew includes it because it makes a point. And we'll see what that point is in just a moment. He begins by talking in verse 1 about these titles given to Jesus. He says the book of the genealogy, or it could be the origins. It's the same Greek word that the word Genesis comes from, the beginning. And there may be intentionally an echo of that first book of the Bible, just as you had creation. So the implication of a new creation coming in the Messiah, similar to the way that the Gospel of John begins with the words, in the beginning was the word. The connection is unmistakable. The book of the Genesis, the origins of Jesus, where he came from, 
what he is about. But then he mentions a couple of titles here. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, those are not just thrown in gratuitously. Those titles are laden with meaning. And any Jew living in Matthew's day reading those titles, and Matthew, by the way, wrote primarily for a Jewish audience to uh, basically make a case that Jesus was their promised Messiah. But certainly to his readers, those titles would have been full of significance and meaning. The Son of David is a title given to Jesus. Uh, It implies that Jesus is the heir to the throne, the connection with David, particularly back to specific promises made in 2 Samuel, for example, chapter 7, where uh, David wants to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, your son will build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. Play on the word, a dynasty, an enduring kingship. And this is what the Lord says. In 2 Samuel 7 to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Matthew's point in naming Jesus as the son of David, as he will go on to make the case in, in the, book, in the uh, book that bears his name, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the descendant of David who would reign on his throne forever. But we also, a familiar passage from uh, Isaiah chapter 9, have a similar promise uh, given through the prophet Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Matthew names Jesus as the son of David, he's hinting here at what he's going to develop through the gospel. And that is that Jesus is the the son that was born, the son who was given that he is the one who will bear the government on his shoulder, and that he is the one who will reign on the throne of his father, David. But he also calls him here the son of Abraham. Again, another significant meaning, uh, uh, or title full of meaning, uh, certainly can refer to one being a Jew, ethnically, physically, uh, but it means more than that. And particularly in this context, it seems to have implication of the promises made to Abraham of God's grace to the nations. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, even in the genealogy, 
there is a hint, as we'll see, of that, that blessing of God's grace through Abraham, through his descendants, to the nations. The gospel going out to the Gentiles, beyond the boundaries of merely Jewish Israel. Well, that brings us to the genealogy. We're not going to go through this name by name other than to make a few observations about it. Uh, as it contains the ancestors of Jesus, uh, showing Jesus is in fact a descendant of David. As you go through, you see names that you know, maybe names that are not familiar to you uh, from the Old Testament. Noteworthy in this genealogy is the inclusion of the names of four women. Noteworthy because typically women's names were not included in genealogies and much speculation has arisen as to exactly why Matthew includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, though he doesn't name Bathsheba, he refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Uh, There could be any number of reasons. I think some of the more plausible ones have to do with, one, the fact that they were all Gentiles. They were all brought into Israel. They were not themselves physical descendants of Abraham. And certainly with Matthew's concern uh, to see the gospel not only for the Jew but for the Gentile, like Paul after him, uh, that would be important to him. These women who are named, who were, who were brought into the line of David, though they themselves were not descendants physically of Abraham. Another suggestion that's been made is uh, perhaps because they were sinners, uh, some of them notoriously so, uh, which certainly would be an indication that the gospel uh, is, is not only for Gentiles, the gospel is for sinners. It's for people who have broken God's law and stand in need of his grace. But it's also true that they are all represent, representatives of God's strange, at times, providence. The way that God worked in their lives, the way that God brought them into uh, the family of Israel. In some cases, questions perhaps concerning the birth of their children, questions of illegitimacy, uh, which also among the Jewish community would plague Mary. And it may be part of Matthew's point to say, well, I'm going to tell you how Jesus was born, but because I know of rumors and speculations about Mary, let it be known that within this genealogy there are other women about whom questions were raised, eyebrows were raised as to the circumstances of the birth of their children. So for these reasons, it seems uh, that Matthew has included the names of these particular women in his genealogy. Now, the structure of the genealogy, basically three groups of 14, as uh, Matthew tells us in verse 17, um, It's uncertain why he chose that number other than perhaps uh, the numerical value of the name of David. If you take the the consonants of his name, their numerical value in Hebrew comes out to be 14. And it could be just another way that Matthew, in stylizing his genealogy, is pointing to Jesus as the promised descendant of David, uh, the Messiah who is to come Now, Matthew is selective in his genealogy. He leaves names out, but perhaps he does so to have these groups of 14 just to sort of numerically make the case for Jesus being the descendant uh, of David who was promised, the Messiah who was to come. And in fact, he gives him that title in verse 16. Uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary. Notice Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He wasn't. But he was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah, called Christ, the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah. And so that's the genealogy. The value of it, and the case that Matthew makes here, is that when Jesus was born, although he was born in a supernatural way, his birth took place in real space and time history. He came from a line of real people. Jesus is not mythology. Jesus took place. He walked on a particular point on this earth at a given time and lived and died and rose from the grave in real history. This is not mythology. This is not the, the upper leap, to use Francis Schaeffer's term, where we move from real history to religious history. This is real history. And that's the case that Matthew is making with his genealogy to show that this is grounded in real history. And so he points to David as the king, or to Jesus as the king, the son of David, the one who came from him, the promised one who would reign on David's throne, whose kingdom would be established forever. David's descendants came and went, but Jesus is the, the one who was promised, whose reign will have no end. And so the first thing we see is that in Jesus, the Lord has given us a king, one who reigns, one who reigns over his people, to be sure, but one who also reigns over the heavens and the earth. Well, in the second place, then we move into verses 18 through 25. In the birth of Jesus, the Lord has given us a Savior. The Lord has given us a Savior. Now, verse 18 begins, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now that he's put it in the historical context, that line of descent, he says this is what happened. This is how Jesus was born. And he tells us the story of it. Uh, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Uh, she was engaged to him, which is the term we would use, but it's much more significant than that. In the Jewish culture, the engagement itself was a legal contract, was a binding obligation that could be broken only by a formal divorce. However, it also uh, involved a period of time passing before the ceremony actually took place and the husband takes the, his, his new wife to live in his home. In that period of time, as the terms indicate here, he could be considered her husband, she would be considered his wife, and yet the marriage had not yet been consummated. She would still be living with her parents until the ceremony took place. And she went then to his home to live with him. And that's where they are. They're betrothed, but we need to recognize the, the binding and serious nature of that betrothal in, in, the cult, in the context of which Matthew writes here. Now it says, before they came together, in other words, before the ceremony, before he had taken her to his home, before they had engaged in any kind of intimate relations at all, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew tells us that, but Joseph doesn't know that from the Holy Spirit. By the, by the divine power of God, this virgin birth, this virginal conception has taken place. Uh, she was found to be with child. Apparently, it began to become obvious. And Joseph didn't know what we know at this point. Uh, Joseph also knew that uh, women don't just get pregnant on their own. And so what was he to think? Uh, he, he certainly knew of his involvement or lack thereof. 
And here she was, and so we read in verse 19, her husband Joseph being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, privately. Joseph could only conclude one thing, and that is that uh, Mary had been unfaithful to him, and even so, he was not vindictive toward her. He was not out for revenge. He did not want to shame her publicly. And so rather than going through a full judicial process for this, there was uh, provision made for a divorce to be uh, put in place through the testimony of two witnesses. And it sounds like from the text, that's what he was planning to do, to do this quietly, to do it privately so as not to scandalize her and yet also because of his character, was not going to go ahead and marry her. But then we read in verse 20, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so now Joseph knows what we know. Uh, that she has not been unfaithful, that this is a miraculous act, a work of God in her. And uh, he goes on then to describe the nature of the child, the nature of his name, the significance of his name, but also the significance of, again, fulfillment of prophecy. First of all, his name, verse 21, she will bear a son. And Joseph was probably the only man up until the last 20, 30 years or so, to know what his child was going to be before it was born. He knew this would be a boy, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we say that in his birth, the Lord has sent us a Savior, and the name Jesus designates him as such. It's a Greek name, Jesus that uh, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, uh, which means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. And that's why the explanation is given. Basically, you are to give him the name Savior because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that in itself was new information because the the predominant idea of the Messiah was, was a Savior, all right, but a Savior from Roman military and political oppression, and maybe also a, a savior in the sense of purifying the, the people through the uh, application and enforcement of the law, the Old Testament law, but the idea that somehow the Messiah was to come and was to die for the sins of his people uh, was, was unknown to the Jews, although certainly not unknown in the Old Testament. Uh, you read passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, which speak graphically of, the, of the, the suffering and dying of the servant of the Lord. But that was not in the people's idea of the Messiah, and yet that's what the angel has, has said to Joseph here. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's the significance of his name, but also the significance of fulfilled prophecy. And Matthew, because he's writing with Jews in mind, is particularly concerned to show how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. How he is, in fact, the promised one and how these point to him and are fulfilled 
in him, and we have the first uh, incident of that here in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from the Old Testament here, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It was quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, which means God, Matthew explains, which means God with us. So Jesus in his name is designated the Savior by the fulfillment of this prophecy is designated as Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this goes back to his virgin birth, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by a man, so that he would, in fact, be God with us, literally. Now, in the Old Testament, God was with his people in various ways. He appeared to them, of course, on Mount Sinai after they'd come out of Egypt. He was with them, his presence in their midst, in the the, the worship uh, tent, the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt in the midst of his people. Uh, And then later the temple, which was built, a permanent structure there in Jerusalem, uh, in the Holy of Holies, where God was present with his people, dwelt in the midst of his people. But this was something entirely new. That in Jesus, God lived among his people bodily, like one of us, becoming one of us. Now, it's really beyond Matthew's scope here to get into the details of the incarnation in terms of the theology of of Christ's incarnation, other than simply to say that Matthew points to the fact that Jesus is God and man. He is the God-man. He is both fully God and fully man. When Jesus became human, he did not give up any of his deity. He did not in any way cease to be God, and yet at the same time taking to himself a true body, true human nature, was also as fully human as you are or I am here today. And so as we read Matthew's description of the fulfillment of this prophecy, we recognize that he is describing something truly miraculous. God in the flesh God incarnate, God with us in a new and amazing and astounding way. And so in the birth of Jesus, the Lord has sent us a Savior. We see that in the sign of his virgin birth. We see that in the significance of the name Jesus. And we also see that in the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given so many centuries before So as Matthew unwraps this gift for us, he shows us two things. The Lord in Jesus has given us a king. He is a king in the line of David, but certainly, as has been described, is King David's greater son. Because Jesus is not merely a king over ethnic Israelites. In fact, Jesus isn't merely king over Christians or all who believe in him today. Jesus is king over everything. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He reigns, rules over history until every enemy is placed under his feet. Now, in our context, uh, a king in many ways is an abstract idea. We don't live in a country that has a king. But we also recognize, though, from countries where there is a king, and certainly from Scripture itself, that as king, Jesus reigns. Jesus does not take public opinion polls. 
Jesus rules. His is a gracious reign, a godly reign, or a just reign, but he is the king. We do not question him. We bow to him. We submit to him. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for many, by then it will be too late when he returns in glory to judge the heavens and the earth. It will be too late for many who have not believed in him. And so we submit to Jesus now. We take him at his word. Jesus' word is not something we weigh and decide if we will accept it or not. Any more than Eve in the garden decided whether she would listen to the word of the Lord or the word of the serpent. When Jesus has spoken to us, we take his word as truth and we live by it. His word is our law. He is our king. The Lord has given us a king. But the Lord has also given us a savior. Yes, Jesus reigns. Yes, this is a just rule. But the amazing thing was that the king himself willingly went to the cross, bore the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him upon himself, and died for them there under the wrath of God. Our king is a gracious king who has taken upon himself the punishment that we, his people, deserve. And the biblical response, as we read earlier, uh, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this Jesus as my Savior? And the biblical response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it means more than merely acknowledging that he lived, like we would believe that George Washington lived. It means that we recognize he is the king. We recognize that we are accountable to him, that we have sinned against him and what we've done and not done, and what we've done and said and thought all of these ways that we have violated his commandments, but that we trust in him as the one who died for sinners to save us of our sin so that we can be forgiven through him because his blood was shed for us, so that we can be in right standing with God through him because his record is put on the page of our lives. The Lord has given us a king. The Lord has given us a savior. What better Christmas gift could anyone have and to follow Jesus as King, and to trust in Him for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. Lord, we thank You for the miraculous way that He came into this world, and the way that He lived under Your law. We thank You, Father, that because He is God, He can die for our sins. Because He is human, He is qualified to represent us. And Father, we pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, it would be with great thanksgiving because you have given us a king. You have given us a savior, one who reigns forever, one who will save forever the one who calls on him in faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.